Welcome to Inside the War Room. Today we have on Donald Critchlow. But first, let me ask a favor. Drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We have been pounding the guests, leaving the sponsors out, asking for one small favor, which is a five-star review. It helps continue to grow this podcast. Okay, Donald Critchlow is a professor at Arizona State University. He's an author of many, 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 many books, but we talk about mainly revolutionary monsters, on this podcast. Um, so I'm not going to yak anymore. I'm going to get to it. Check out the show notes at ridingracing.com newsletter. You know where that's at. All of that is at the show notes. So let's talk to Donald about his book, Revolutionary Monsters. Well, Don, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? Uh, very good. Uh, thank you for having me. And I look forward to our conversation. Okay. Revolutionary Monsters. So that's an interesting title. So uh, before we talk about the five people that you focus on the book, revolutionary monsters uh, being an american revolutionary is it always a bad thing if we go back to 1776 so how are you distinguishing what makes a revolutionary good and, and in this case a monster yeah they uh that's a really uh, great uh question to start off with uh the american revolutionaries weren't monsters uh and that they called for a political revolution not a social revolution they did a call for trying to create a utopian society in which you were going to have uh, social uh, equality in which everyone was going to be equal. The American revolutionary, our founding fathers, called for political equality, that everyone should be uh, seeing under the law as having equal rights. But they didn't think that everyone should be of uh, of the same uh, social uh, status. And the reason why, and the difference between the American revolutionaries and the English revolutionaries during the, uh, in the Magna Carta and the Civil War, English Civil War is, is exactly this issue of social, uh, trying to create a utopian society. Our founding fathers understood that humankind was, uh, in, uh, had imperfections, and that there was uh, once in power, power uh, escalates, centralizes, and they feared uh, centralized political power. That is the American revolutionaries. The revolutionaries I talk about, the revolutionary monsters, sought more and more centralized power. They ultimately ended up being involved, uh, revolving around them as dictators. Okay, and so let's go through the ones that you selected. Some names on here are going to be um, quite popular, Lenin, Mao, Castro, but you also have a couple that are people might not be as familiar, familiar with. Why these five? Well, uh, the other two were uh, uh, an African uh, leader in Zimbabwe, Mugabe, and the other was the head of the uh, Iranian uh, revolution, Khomeini. Uh, whom we're, we're still dealing with the aftermath of, uh, of the Iranian revolution. So what I set out to do in the book is to write a very short, very readable uh, account of how these, uh, of why these men uh, rose to power, what uh, drove them, and uh, what the tragic, tragic consequences of all of these uh, regimes uh, led to. So I try, So what I did was pick not only well-known leaders, monsters, revolutionaries, such as Lenin and Mao and Castro, I tried to pick leaders <laughs> from throughout the uh, world, from different continents to show that this was a larger pattern than just the communists coming to power in Russia and China or Cuba. In a recent interview on this show, um, one of my guests said that her friend uh, was giving her a hard time because she's a Christian, and the friend said that relig religion is the biggest killer in human history. And I said, you know, I don't have the numbers, but I would suspect over the last hundred years, governments have killed more people in that time period than any religious um, crusade that's ever happened. Um, am, am I right or wrong in that? Is, is there, or is religion tied to these revolutionary monsters as well? Well, uh, that's uh, that too is uh, is a good question. Uh, if you look at these uh, regimes, uh, Bolsheviks in uh, in Russia and the uh, 
communism in uh, China, hundreds of millions of people were deliberately killed, deliberately. Christians, uh, we had religious wars, there's no doubt about it, uh, but Christianity, as it was introduced, brought a revolutionary concept to, uh, to, to, hi to history. And that was the dignity of man. That is that individuals had dignity and they had worth and they were all equal in the eyes of God. That is a revolutionary concept when Christianity was introduced. Um, and the revolutionary monsters, Lenin Mao, Mugabe, Castro and uh, Khomeini do not be, did not believe in individual uh, worth. It was all the worth of the collective. And so if you needed to kill a few people, a few million people, a few hundred thousand people, <laughs> so be it. So that was their mentality. Unlike the, uh, the, the Christian doctrine, that recognizes that everyone in the eyes of God are equal. We are all the children of God, not the state. Yeah, so let's unpack that social collective there. Um, and what role um, should it play? Because as you you talk about that um, concept of, you know, I was watching uh, the hunt for Red October last night. And so, you know, oh. in that you have all this talk about this is Mother Russia's ship and this is this. And in, in a sense, there's a lot of talk about how communist regimes uh, talk that way. But practically, I'd argue that that's more propaganda than how they think, obviously. So I don't think, um, you know, Mao thought of himself as part of the collective. He would consider himself above the collective, but he needs everyone beneath him to believe they're a part of the collective. So why is it hard maybe for people to realize that the leaders that espouse these type of things don't actually believe them when it comes to themselves? Well, many of the uh, revolutionaries, Lenin, all of them actually came to power, <coughs> excuse me, uh, capturing the best wishes of the dreams, the aspirations of the common people who all lived in societies with great inequality, with kind of rulers with absolute uh, power. And so they, the people wanted a, a better society. And so these revolutionaries captured at, at unique periods in history, the great aspirations, the dream of the people by promising that a new society could be created, by promising that history could be erased, that there was going to be something new and imaginative. And uh, the claims were, uh, were quite preposterous, but at the time had great attraction. And uh, once into power, what they had found out that they couldn't really achieve these dreams of social equality, they began to have to eliminate enemies and ultimately even their own uh, comrades and colleagues because these monsters begin to see themselves <coughs> as necessary for the revolution. Without them, the, fi uh, the society fails. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I'm thinking about Edgar Snow's book, which I will link into uh, the show notes, which is called Red Star Over China. And I can't remember if it's, if it's Snow or if it's someone that was telling a story about, but he talks about how, you know, Mao's ascent, all these farmers, they're poor, they're starving. Uh, the Japanese warlords are coming in and they don't want that. And so he uses this, as you're talking about, this ideal to kind of get people behind him. But then as he ascends, uh, I think it's Snow. Snow goes to visit them and they put on this whole pomp and circumstance thing about how they're peaceful and how they're friendly and how they're, they're not what people say about them. And, and, and the, the people kind of fall for it, like, oh, the, the reporter or the journalist kind of fall for it, like, oh, okay, they're not, they're, it's not as bad as I thought it was. And there's a question that I've, I've pondered about. You have the propaganda that's coming from the regimes, but also the question of the role of media that's promulgated many of these lies for many, many years. And so, I mean, I mean what are your thoughts on the role that media has played as it pertains to communism and indirectly, at least, allowing for human death to continue? Yes. Uh... Edgar Snow was a journalist who was selected by Mao 
to come to uh, his camp up in the mountains in northern China. And uh, a whole charade theater was put forward for Edgar Snow. And Edgar Snow agreed to allow Mao uh, and his comrades to read the manuscript and edit it. So Snow projected this kind of peasant leader who was fighting for democracy and reallocation of land against the landlords, also fighting the Japanese invaders. And so he was just like a common, common uh, peasant, a Democrat really, and not really a communist. And so persuasive was this uh, image that Mao projected. American State Department officials uh, including, as well as uh, the president uh, at the time, Roosevelt, really, really saw Mao as kind of a Democrat and not really a communist. In fact, uh, when uh, Wendell Wolke, who's a Republican running for president, uh, went so far as to claim that uh, Mao was more democratic than uh, many of American political leaders. So, and the same thing occurs with uh, Castro, who arranged to have a New York Times reporter come out and visit him. Once again, theater is put forward. Matt Castro presents himself as a Democrat, not really uh, a communist. He's uh, just seeking uh, political reform in, uh, in Cuba, not a social uh, revolution. And, not, and, and I think even more telling is uh, Khomeini, who was portrayed by the press before the Iranian uh, revolution as just this uh, kind of simple uh, scholar, Islamic scholar, a man of humble taste, a man who was really wanting to restore democracy. Uh, and Khomeini, uh, and we know from his writings at the time that he was very anti-democratic he was also extremely opposed to any kind of reform that would have allowed Iranian women to go to college. He was opposed to the West. We know from his writings at the time that were in Arabic and Iranian uh, that, that uh, he saw that there was uh, a Western conspiracy and his so-called uh, uh, so uh, scholarly writings are mostly uh, diatribes, I've read them in translation, against uh, Zionists, he's extremely anti-Semitic. It wasn't that he was just anti-Zionist, anti-Israel. He saw, he saw Jews as being uh, instruments of Satan. So if, they, if the journalists had bothered to read Khomeini, they would have uh, seen this. Instead, he uh, projects this image as kind of, a, once again, a simple Democrat, a man of simplicity. And even after he comes into power, in the same way with Castro, the same way in the Soviet regime, the same way with, in Stalin, the same way with Mao, they continue to, the media continues to project these, uh, these men as kind of uh, leading simple lives, with great dreams for democracy in their own country, but really undertaking mean, meaningful uh, reform. Uh, it's only when it becomes so apparent that of the, of the starvation in, uh, in, uh, in Russia and, the, uh, the, and, and afterwards when they finally revealed the whole extensive gulag system that uh, there's criticism similarly with China. It took uh, reports, which initially the Western press and the CIA denied that there was mass starvation in China. Finally, we know it finally came out that uh, millions of uh, Chinese had starved under a deliberate uh, policy for Mao, in which Mao actually issued quotas on local party cadre of how many people should die. This is what we're talking about. So the, me the Western media has been complicitous in uh, projecting these kinds of images of uh, monsters who are, who are very anti-West and uh, have no regard for uh, humanity. Okay, so 
Uh, first, I'll link to Edward Snow's book, um, Edgar Snow book, right? Red Star of China at the show notes. So for listeners who want to read that um, and those stories that you just laid out are in there. Um, furthermore, but, but so we've got we got one problem, which is the media. We've got another problem, which is the the kind of the rallying up of the population. They were they, these people are actually hitting on real pain points for real citizens, right? So it's not as if they're making up these crazy things. You have people who are feeling the pain and they're able to tap into that emotion. And then you touched on this, which is other world governments endorsing or not actually calling out what's going on. And so it becomes even a three-pronged problem, which is you've got the self-appointed leader who's propaganda, the media who's complicit, and then now you got Western governments or wherever that are also saying it's not as bad or it's good. And that's because in some cases they're trying to fight some other proxy war or some other enemy. So how are we to decipher all of this? Yeah, well, I think uh, the way to uh, deconstruction it deconstructing this is uh, it begins with uh, uh, authors uh, such as myself writing books such as uh, revolutionary monsters and podcasts such as yours beginning to uh, educate people about the threat uh, the continued threat of revolutionary monsters still uh, reappearing and to be wary of these kinds of uh, Western media projections that these regimes are really, you know, they might be slightly fault, flawed, but they're not as uh, horrendous as they uh, are. I mean, we saw that there was in the 1950s continual denials of uh, a massive famine in, uh, in China. We saw earlier in the 1930s massive uh, denials of famine in uh, Russia. We're seeing denials today of the kind of oppressive regime in uh, Iran in which revolutionaries under the uh, Iranian uh, guard, which was created by Khomeini to remain, uh, to keep uh, regime power uh, in place. That government after the la last uh, fake elections, stolen elections, if you will, have come to power and they're extremely anti-Western, they're terrorists, and uh, we're, uh, we're negotiating with them. And somehow the media uh, projects often this kind of, that we're dealing with the reform faction in uh, uh, Iran. There's no such thing now as the reform faction in Iran. The last elections, eliminating anyone who was, uh, who was somewhat moderate. And I don't think moderate really captures uh, what their mentality was. But we're now dealing with a revolutionary regime that sees the West as uh, Satan. When they denounce the uh, United States as, uh, as, as Satan, they really mean it. We, have, we think it's just political rhetoric, but it's not. Okay, so rank for us um, from worst to, I don't want to say best, but least worst, maybe, <laughs> the characters in your book and why. Who is the worst and who is the, the best, if you will, of the bunch? Well, there's no such thing as the best. Uh, there's a number, number of ways of uh, measuring this, and one begin, can begin with the number of deaths. So if you just count uh, deaths, Probably uh, Mao, which is estimated to have killed his own citizens without counting uh, war uh, between 45 million and 7 million. Uh, so that, that's a lot of blood on your hands. Uh, Lenin is right up there and the Stalin regime. Uh, and if you count the uh, World War II uh, and the kind of the purge of what was going on in Eastern Europe, probably you know, uh, Lenin, Lenin and Stalin would come in uh, next. In terms of uh, what we're facing today, I would say the Khomeini regime in Iran is, is probably the most uh, serious threat we have in the Middle East, but China, which has now uh, uh, become one party rule, one Supreme Court leader is probably, uh, is probably our most severe threat in the world. So Iran is a threat in the Middle East and uh, China is our most uh, 
is our most uh, serious threat. So in the end, measuring the worst in terms of contemporary threats, maybe Mal ranks uh, highest. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, I think we talked on a previous podcast about this idea about Hitler and his body count. And you, you put Hitler up to Mao and Stalin and you start to realize, oh, wow, that there, there's been a lot of other people who have killed a lot of people um, that just does not get the attention. And it's really weird because, um, you know, obviously Hitler kind of had this expansionist idea where he rolled through Europe, but just pure body count and killing your own people. Uh, Stalin, Mao, Lenin, these guys have huge numbers. Why, why is it that that's not talked about as much kind of comparing the, the body counts of these terrible, these terrible people? Well, uh, I, I continue to get uh, emails from uh, people who have read the book and ask, well, why did I include Hitler? Why did I uh, uh, include uh, Cambodia, Pol Pot, and others? So I had a wide uh, choice of people that I could have uh, selected. Hitler uh, is uh, an interesting example in, in that he wasn't really a revolutionary per se, uh, in that he did come, he was appointed by a democratic elected uh, government. He does have these fake elections, but he doesn't come to power in, the same, in a mass revolutionary uh, manner. He had uh, large numbers of supporters, but <clears throat> actually, um, so I didn't consider him a revolutionary. Within his party, there were revolutionaries. That was the, the, those who believed that, uh, that they were going to, once in power, there was going to be a social revolution against the capitalists, against the corporations. Once Hitler gets into power, he makes, uh, he, makes uh, he backs off, he, he aligns himself with corporate interests and, uh, and the military. So he's not, he's, he's not a revolutionary, he does something else. He purges the Nazi party of the revolutionaries uh, in the SA, it's called the Night of the Long Knives. He sends out, he's created kind of a SS, a new, uh, a new Praetorian Guard. He goes out and arrests the uh, leaders of the SA. Many members of the SA, by the way, Ryan, this is, uh, I think, pretty rich. They showing the revolutionary sentiment. They called the they were called uh, beefsteaks, brown on the outside and red on the inside. Over a third of SA membership uh, were former communists. The SA, the Nazis, liked the communists because they were street fighters. They really the ones they really despised were the social democrats. Uh, they were they were softy, wimpy liberals. They didn't know how to go out and uh, street fight. The communists uh, did, so they were persuaded. Many communists left the party, the street fighters, and joined the SA, and they were at beefsteaks. They really believed in the revolution. Uh, this was national socialism. They thought they could create socialism, but in the end, I don't think uh, they Hitler purged those people and wasn't really. A revolutionary, although he did have insidious dreams of creating a whole new world without uh, Jews, one based on the on the Nordic uh, Aryan people. How was Castro able to stay in power for so long? Yeah, well, that's <clears throat> all of these uh, regimes. You know, you look at Lenin, Mao, uh, uh, Khomeini. Mugabe does eventually fall when he tries to appoint his wife as, as president. <laughs> but they still have a ruling party, a one-party system in Zimbabwe. Uh, so all of these regimes stay in power. I mean, the communists are still in power in Cuba. The Iranian, uh, Iranian uh, Islamic Revolution is still in power in Iran. The communist uh, CCP are still in power in China. And we might argue that the CCP is, excuse me, the Communist Party is not in power in Russia, but basically you have one, one person rule in Russia. So that's another lesson that we should learn, that these monsters use the rhetoric of 
bringing in democracy, restoring the will of the, the voice of the people. But once in power, the people are uh, are going to be crushed. Well, you, you have that, but you have something like Castro, and, and it's you know this ninety miles off the the U.S. border. Um, was involved with maybe the closest thing to nuclear war we've ever seen, <laughs> but the, but it, I'm I'm torn because um, I am not much of a military interventionist, and I'm not much for sanctions and embargoes. And I look at something like Castro as kind of like point in case, like are we are we actually doing good by trying to quote uh, sanction them to death? It, it seems like Castro would be an example that. Um, you're playing into their hands. So that's my curious when I'm thinking about this thing in power. It's like, are is the West and the way it handles these communist regimes, uh, the smaller ones particularly, is it actually playing into the hands of the leaders? Yeah, the uh one thing that these revolutionary regimes need are are enemies, especially when they're under attack. So Castro very effectively used uh, the patriotic feelings of the Cuban people. Uh, against American uh, imperialism. Uh, and that was especially the case when we tried to send CIA forces into, you know, and to try to overthrow the government. It was a, it not only was a failed uh, attempt and it failed because we underestimated the support the Cuban people gave Castro at that point, but it also backfired that Castro was even able to institute more power uh, and go after uh, dissenters. So, but the, in, the, in the end, I think you're raising a really interesting uh, question of how do people go along with these regimes? Obviously you have dissenters of varying degrees. Obviously those dissenters, you know, are going to face uh, Police powers uh, will be sent off to gulags and re-education uh, camps, as they're called, mental hospitals. But a lot of people go along with the uh, with the regime. They accommodate themselves to uh, the regime, uh, and that's an interesting uh, phenomena. Uh, I'll tell. There's a story I tell in the uh, in Revolutionary Monsters about a later uh, Russian uh, Soviet dissident who was growing up in Moscow in the 1930s as a young boy. And uh, actually he says that life in the 1930s under Stalin in Moscow was pretty good relative to what they experienced uh, in the 20s, in the 1920s. They had their, many people had their own apartments, they had food, uh, they had jobs, their kids were being educated. And then uh, it's discovered one day that his neighbors across the hall have been arrested as being uh, spies for uh, West, for France and England. And what's the, uh, how does the family respond to this? You have your neighbors being arrested. They respond by going, gee, I didn't know they were uh, spies. That's really frightening. They're they're everywhere, and then the neighbors down the hall got elect, uh, arrested, and the conclusion was, yeah, this is even more extensive than I thought. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most people like to get by, and then you have an educational system that becomes a propaganda system. So uh, the first thing that all of these regimes do is uh, go after the schools. They also go after uh, the families because the family, families need to be broken up. So kids are encouraged to report their uh, parents if they see any kind of deviation, any revolutionary thought. So when Mao in the uh, 60s is threatened by other factions within the uh, party that want to open up uh, China to the to the West and undertake reform. They see that his great leap forward had failed. Mao turns to the youth uh, and toward the people who have been educated to see Mao as this great leader, and they form and they become the uh, Red Guard. So that so 
they've they through repression and through educational systems, propaganda and complete indoctrination, they're able to win over many people. And uh, and and actually in Soviet Union in the 30s and Mao, even in the 50s, people think that their society, their economy is better than what's happening in the West. And, and sometimes what happens is when the Soviet Union sends over spies to the West and they see in the 1930s and they see that things aren't quite as bad as uh, they're in fact better than, uh, than, uh, than things are in the Soviet Union. They 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 uh, turn and uh, turn and become uh, counter agents, counter spies for uh, the West. Anyway, yeah. Well, you mentioned Mao there, and and that touches on something you said earlier about this idea about circling the wagons. They need enemies. Um, you know, one of the things that Mao did um, was he would he would start beating the war drums against Taiwan, and I think he bombed him a few times even um, because people were starving to death. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, either we can address the starving, or we can tell everyone that you know Taiwan's about to, Taiwan's about to invade us, or you know we need to attack Taiwan now, or whatever it might be, to distract everyone from that. And I, I get a little frustrated with modern commentators on uh, China or wherever. And there's oftentimes where they don't consider that these regimes might just be doing stuff to distract from internal problems that's going on in their own country. Yeah, well, that's, I think uh, George Orwell in his book, 1984, talks about how, uh, how you need to have external uh, enemies. And uh, so they're always at war with different countries and the war shifts and that country is now a friend. But that's, uh, that's a common technique of ruling uh, parties, regimes to distract people uh, and play upon their uh, patriotic uh, sentiments. And the Chinese, I've lectured uh, a number of times on mainland China and uh, at universities. I can tell you the, the young Chinese today, uh, students have forgotten Tiananmen Square. Uh, actually, many of them see democracy as, as a failure. Uh, they see uh, China as the new, the new uh, the new power in the world replacing America, but they're extremely uh, nationalistic. Uh, they're very proud, and the Chinese regime has played upon that uh, on that nationalism. Not yeah. that nationalism is necessarily bad. I'm not sure. suggesting that our patriotism is bad, but it, the uh, regimes play upon this sentiment. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask you. Would you say that the Chinese historically have been the best at being able to send their people abroad and have maybe the fewest percentage of defectors? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know about the number of, uh, of uh, defectors they've had, but clearly when the Soviet, the Soviet Union did not, they only sent mostly intelligence office officers or agents over with a few uh, maybe businessmen, especially early in the regime. Uh, but the Chinese have, uh, have really, they're sending their students all over the world. I gave a lecture a few years ago in Australia, in Melbourne, and uh, it, was, it was surprising, I guess, to see how many of the students were Chinese. And I think, um, I can't remember the percentage, but it's, it was close to half the students in Melbourne University in Australia were Chinese. Okay, so give us maybe, uh, it, it's weird to talk in these terms of favorites, but the story that intrigued you the most researching this book. Well, there were a number. I, I have to tell you, it was really grim reading. And, uh, uh, the stories that are related in Revolutionary Monsters uh, uh, are, are eye-opening. Uh, I think they make for graphic reading, but they're not, uh, they're not nice uh, fairy tales that you're going to feel really great about the world. You're going to be concerned about the world. I think what really the, the came across some of the more interesting parks were how really most of these revolutionary leaders came from privileged backgrounds. Lenin, uh, 
came from a very privileged background. He actually, his family on his mother's side were nobles. Uh, they had their own uh, country uh, uh, farm with uh, with serfs, and he lived uh, he lived quite well. Mao, his father, I mean, he came from the most humble of uh, stock, but his uh, his father was uh, was a landowner with a number, pretty large landowner for the. For the province and had a number of peasants uh, working for him. So what's interesting is how each of these men came came from pretty privileged backgrounds and end up becoming uh, revolutionaries. That's kind of an interesting uh, complex problem of how you could be in a society one of the more privileged and end up becoming uh, revolutionary. All of these men as I trace in uh, revolutionary monsters, all were showed signs of, when they were young of being megalomaniacs. They were all kind of distant from their, uh, their student friends, looked down on them, not friends, their peers looked down on them, uh, thought they were smarter than, uh, than, most, uh, than most people. So uh, there's something there but the step to becoming, having, being arrogant, self-centered, condescending, to becoming inhumane, willing to kill people, hundreds, mm. thousands, millions of people, is a step that's, uh, I, I, which is a step that we find unfathomable. In some ways, it's trying to understand the mind of a serial killer. And they're very hard to understand for most of us who, who aren't psychotic. Yeah, for the non-crazies in the world, it's, it doesn't yeah. make sense. But um, we should realize that's the point of the book, that we should realize that we've not only had revolutionary monsters, we have revolutionary monsters walking uh, amongst us today. And given the, given the right occasions, the right historical circumstances, you can have revolutionary monsters that come to power. This is a phenomenon that we should be concerned with. It's exactly what our founder, founding fathers warned us against, that absolute power, power breeds absolute uh, power. And that's what they were concerned with. I wrote a piece, I don't know, last year, year four, um, arguing that I think the map, so the last hundred years, in, you know, for the back, especially the last hundred years, the map was kind of drawn from the top down. You know, you got, you got Versailles, you got World War II, all these big top-down decisions that drew the map. I, I am curious your thoughts looking ahead. I, I wrote that I think the next hundred years, the map will be redrawn from the bottom up, that you won't be able to have these big councils and saying, hey, yeah, we're going to do this. I, it feels like, I'm not saying we can't have these revolutionary monsters in the future, uh, but it feels like there is maybe more of a distrust of the state than at least at least in my lifetime I can think of globally where people are really asking a lot of questions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, uh, the previous book was in defense of populism. My previous book was in defense of populism, in which I argue that we're at a populist moment in, in our history and globally. I think populism is taking different forms uh, European populism is really different than American populism. In many ways, there's uh, kind of ultra-nationalism in European populism. But we're seeing a populist protest and response against global, global elites. And that's happening across the country. We're seeing it in the Netherlands against the, in the farmers' uh, revolt. Uh, but within this uh, rise of uh, populist sentiment, it's really, uh, it's, it's an argument, it's a fight, a struggle, if you will, between the left and the right. Uh, the left is making uh, great gains, capturing uh, any uh, elite, any establishment, any global sentiment. Right now in Latin America, step by step, the left is making uh, considerable gains uh, across the countries. Brazil is about ready to uh, to throw out, throw out, uh, put into power uh, Lulu, 
who's capturing this kind of popular uh, sentiment. So we're seeing a resurgence on the left. And we see in this country, I think, a fight between, you know, the kind of the populist and uh, uh, sentiment in the Republican Party, but it's also on the left, too. Bernie Sanders represents that. And they're, captured, they're arguing about inequality in their own way. They're arguing against uh, global elites, too. So we're at a... We're, I agree with you that we're at a populist moment, but it's not necessarily one that can go in a more conservative uh, direction. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I had another piece about populism and um, the fear of populism is that because it kind of has this feeling of, hey, our guy's sticking it to the powerful, this is our person, they recognize with this that, that you can almost go overboard in always defending them. And hearing you talk about this book, um, it feels like maybe there, there is something there that, that one of the, that while there's, there, 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 there could be some good things for populism and some bad things, and the bad things would be is that populist leaders, are they less prone to be criticized from their own base? Yeah, the, uh, that's one of the things, we're getting off on another book here, but in defense of populism, I think uh, what you see in the American tradition is that you get these populist uh, protests and it forces the uh, political parties to establish political parties, whatever they are at varying points, to respond to uh, this populist protest. So they pick up uh, much, much of the reform agenda and even incorporate some populist leaders into their own uh, positions. Today within the Republican Party, you know, Trump's being attacked as a populist and in a way that the populism is different that we don't, uh, we, it's a social movement, but it's occurred within the, uh, within the Republican uh, Party. So uh, he's capturing this populist sentiment. I don't necessarily think that this is a, a populist movement per se, because it's contained within the uh, within the, uh, the Republican party. But this point that, you know, that, that, that the leaders of these movements can't be criticized, I think is kind of taken, uh, is taken overboard, especially by the, uh, by the opponents. The fact is that Trump, is, Trump has a lot of critics among uh, conservatives, perhaps not so much within the base, but even in the, uh, in the base itself, quite frankly. Okay, so maybe thread this needle for us. Um, so you have these monsters; they come up. Um, um, they're they are psychopaths that you know, they make Ted Bundy look yeah. like a nice guy, um, yeah. relatively speaking. You know, these are right. terrible humans, um, but they are able to tap into the message of the people and get the support, and then kind of quickly flip things over in a matter of you know short short amount of time. How do we prevent that from happening? Because yeah. if there are no problems, it would seem well, when we live in a world that's going to be problems, but there are the less problems there are, the harder it would be for these people to rise to power. Yeah, I think, you know, so how do these people come to power beforehand? I think uh, two things are necessary. First of all, the ruling elites at the time lose confidence in their own regime. Uh, they just don't understand. They they see themselves as basically interested only in power and greed, and they lose confidence. And their sons and daughters often become revolutionaries. So it's when the ruling elites lose confidence in their own regimes. The second thing that happens is when you have discontent among the masses that the regimes don't represent them. That's all corruption, and there's uh, and there's failure. And so we're at a moment in our history where I think the elites in this country, economic, political elites, have actually lost confidence in themselves in a very strange way. They just see that they too feel that they are just interested in power and, and greed if they're at all reflective. What's really concerning, and this gets to your question, disconcerting, is that the people have lost, the Americans and shown in surveys, have lost trust in our institutions. And, uh, and once you have erosion of trust in our institutions, 
then it becomes a very volatile uh, situation. How do you restore trust? And that's going to be the issue of the day. It's one of the reasons why we just established a new center, which is going to be a national center for Center for American Institutions here at ASU. But we need to begin to uh, restore trust in our institutions. And it begins, it begins, Ryan, with the rule of law. We need to, we are a constitutional republic. We, we are founded on the rule of law and that needs to be restored. And it appears too often to people that we have a two-tier system, not only for our political leaders, that is Hillary and Trump and so forth, but a two-tiered system for the people that have money to afford good defense lawyers and the people, uh, the poor people who have to rely on public defenders and, uh, and volunteer uh, lawyers to help get them out of uh, prison. So we have, we need to restore confidence in our legal system and we need to restore confidence in our political institutions by having leaders that really represent us that are not just uh, mouthpieces for lobbyists and special uh, interest. We can, we can do this, but we're at a really very delicate point in our, uh, in, in our history. So we, we can restore faith in our institutions, but it's gonna take some work and it might begin first on the educational system, K-1 through 12 in our, in our institutions of higher learning. Yeah, yeah, and I would just, I would just submit that yeah, one of the frustrations I see is that, um, I, I don't, again, I don't think, I don't actually think we have a loss of faith in institutions. Um, I understand what you're saying, and, and I've, I bring this up almost every podcast, it feels like, but there's a poll that, you know, they don't, you know, 20% of Americans trust politicians, and I always joke that that's the other politicians, and so, so if you take a current yeah. event, if you take yeah. an event, it's like, well, if the FBI does this and the Republicans are in power, well, it's probably a good thing. If the FBI does this and the Democrats are in power, <laughs> bad thing, and so it's not actually the institution of the FBI that people are, are skeptical of. If they were, that actually might bring about some reform. They're 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 skeptical of the ruling party that's in power, and they believe that that party is manipulating the system, which I think is a relatively fair thing to, to consider. But um, if you take the recent, um, just recent events, and, and someone was asking my thoughts on them, I said, well, it's quite possible that this group was corrupt, and it's quite, quite possible that this group was corrupt, and it's quite possible that they're both corrupt at the same <laughs> time. Like, I don't know. I actually don't right. know. I don't have a thought, but all of those are on the table. And so it, that's, that's a sense of realism uh, i'm not trying to erode the faith in the institution but i'm also trying to be realistic of what could be the case um regardless of what i want to be um and i think we 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 don't want to completely negate institutions because I, I understand that right. there, but we have to we have to be okay with that that quote our guy or our gal might be a bad guy or a bad gal because that's right i agree with that there's a lot of in, it fa all. in fact i think more accurately it's not uh uh, uh a breakdown of trust in our institutions. It's more of a breakdown of the people in charge of those institutions right now. And that's, that's what's occurring. We still have faith in basically the rule of law, republic uh, system, uh, federalist system, the nature of democracy. We still have faith generally that we can clean up elections and make sure everybody's uh, vote is counted and so forth. Uh, but anyway, that's, I think you're uh, right. But I think we also uh, need to be, uh, we need to understand that, uh, that all of us, every human is valuable uh, and that they're not perfect. And they and they and that they they're open to criticism, including including uh, political leaders and economic leaders and even people we admire. That's the sad truth of the human condition, and we can uh, project that onto ourselves and understand that we're not all knowing, all wise, and make uh, make mistakes in our own life. Although 
I don't think we're, uh, we should see ourselves as totally corrupt. I, at least I can speak for myself on that. I don't think of myself as corrupted yet. <laughs> no, 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 not corrupted yet. Not corrupted yet. I'm with you there. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've enjoyed this. And I think this book is a great thing that we always talk about learning lessons from history. And, and I think that that's a, it's a great talking point, but then you have to stop and start processing what happened. How do these people come here? Because People say, oh, we don't we want to prevent the next Hitler. It's like, okay, great. Well, what actually led to someone like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Castro? What actually led to them? What did they say? What did they do? Why were they able to tap into this? And how do you prevent that? And it seems like those discussions aren't really what we have. It's like, oh, we have to prevent this. Like, okay, prevent. It's like, well, what? Prevent from what? What, what, what? You know, how's it work? So, um, thank you for the book. Do you have an upcoming project uh, or something that you want to promote? We'll link to the book for Amazon or anywhere else you want us to. Well, I'm working on something, but we're, right now I'm uh, we're getting this new Center for American Institutions established. That's a lot of work. We're we're trying to fight the good fight and uh, restoring uh, our institutions and also just basic civic awareness. It was. It's surprising what little uh, students don't know. If I may end in a, uh, with this brief story, we were in our uh, in an introductory course last semester. This was in the spring. Uh, one of the students, um, a, a junior actually, said that he had never heard that Poland had been communist. He had never heard of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So when we're talking about you know, really nuanced questions, how we prevent dictators. It has to begin with maybe some basic knowledge of history. And I hope that was my contribution to Revolutionary Monsters. Absolutely. Is there a website for the Institute? We're just, that's one of the things we're work doing. Okay. Yeah, we're working on it right. All right. Hey, thanks on. a lot for the invitation. And I hope uh, it gets wide uh, circulation among your uh, viewers. Okay. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, there it is. What do you think about that discussion? Are you concerned about communism, how it's phrased in modern society, the impact it's had on human history? RyanRaySenior.com slash newsletter is where you join the conversation at, and we'll talk real soon.